0: This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial.
1: It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful.
0: Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think.
2: Think Health on 2SDR 107.3. Hello and welcome to Think Health. I'm Nina Kopel.
1: Today on the show... Their mother's breastfed, their grandmother's breastfed, their sister's breastfed, their auntie's breastfed. And the theme in that is women. We look at
2: breastfeeding as a cultural practice in the Arabic community. But first, stop for a second to think about your breath. The air coming in, filling your lungs, exhaling. It's something you do all the time. And if you like most, it's easy, thoughtless. But imagine that now you had to draw all your air through a straw. Just think how much less oxygen you'd be able to get in, and how much less CO2 you could get out. For people with chronic respiratory conditions, this is what breathing feels like, and the constant breathlessness is further punctuated by crises, where breath seems almost unachievable. Do you swim, sir? Yeah, sure. Sure. All right. This is Sue Griffin. Yes, Sue. And I'm calling Sue in her home where she's comfortable and has oxygen close at hand. She suffers from breathlessness and says a bad attack can feel a bit like when things go wrong during a swim or a surf. And then you start
3: to try and get out of that water and you are trying to reach the top and you're trying to reach the air. And your breath is getting shorter and your lungs are getting tighter.
2: For some time, Sue didn't know why she was so breathless.
3: Initially, doctors classed it as a cold.
2: Then bronchitis.
3: Then it was uh, pneumonia.
2: When Sue went back to the GP, they basically just said, Get to the hospital.
3: Do not fast go. Do not collect $200.
2: And,
3: and go and get some air.
2: Before this, Sue worked in office management, but her issues with breathing put an end to her career.
3: It went from virtually I am capable. I am working. I am good at my job to bedridden in hospital within two to three weeks.
0: So chronic breathlessness really is breathlessness that doesn't go away despite the optimal treatment of the underlying disease. It's very common in diseases like COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. You also get it with lung cancer, with asthma, of course, as most people would know.
2: This is Dr. Tim Luckett. He's a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney.
0: If you think about having breathlessness every day, even when you try to do the most minimally stressful things uh, like hang the washing out, even walk to the bathroom for some people, you can imagine how that would reduce your world and your ability to go out, to engage with other people, just to do the everyday things that we all take for granted.
2: Tim and a team of researchers are looking at breathlessness to investigate the profound impact it has on people's lives from a mental and a physical health perspective. But apart from the heavy burden breathlessness can put on people's health, it can also have a really heavy burden on the health system.
0: People going to emergency for when they experience what's called a breathlessness crisis on top of their everyday chronic breathlessness. So that's when people get a spike in. In their breathlessness they often panic and they go to emergency and interestingly the research suggests that about half of those ED presentations are avoidable if if people had better support in the community and were had better self management strategies in place.
2: COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease is actually the second most common cause of avoidable presentations in emergency departments. What Tim wanted to know is whether breathlessness sufferers themselves had the power to change this.
0: Our most recent research project has been talking to people with breathlessness every day and who experience these spikes or crises and who have had experience of avoiding one or more ED presentation and most importantly were glad in hindsight that they did avoid. And I should emphasise that sometimes, of course, you do have to go to hospital with these these breathlessness episodes and it's trying to figure out the times when you should go and the times that you shouldn't uh, the warning signs the factors associated with those that's really of major interest
2: sometimes with breathlessness hospital is the answer but what tim is saying is that at other times with the right tools some people do manage to tackle their crises at home
0: it's very difficult to avoid a crisis completely. What maybe you, you may be able to do is to actually knock that crisis on the head fairly quickly, you know, reduce it escalating rapidly, getting worse, getting into this vicious cycle with panic, which then makes the breathlessness worse, which then makes the anxiety worse, and then actually really take a cool, calm, collected approach to deciding whether or not you need to go to emergency, really based on whether you're able to self-manage that breathlessness by yourself.
2: And are people able to do that?
0: And so that was what was really incredible about these people we talked to. And I really, really gained some new heroes through this research because the ability of some of these people, the expertise they have in self-monitoring, in separating the distress component from the severity of breathlessness component was really quite amazing.
2: That's what's really cool about this study You have researchers going to the patients to talk to them about their expertise and to see if they can help them help others handle their breathlessness. One of these experts, one of Tim's new heroes, is Sue.
3: I get up and I start doing things and, you know, I get the cups out and everything's good and all is well in the world and I'm putting the stuff out and whatnot and then As I do it, my oxygen levels deteriorate and deteriorate and I don't pay attention. That's not good. Then it gets to a point where, yeah, I'm okay, but I'm really not. And what happens to the brain, my brain, and this is my my opinion anyway, is that my brain starts to deteriorate to a level that doesn't, quite understand that I need more oxygen.
2: But Sue has developed strategies to handle this. She knows what to do.
3: I can bring myself back by sheer uh, determination of... It it is... I use this term, breathe in the roses and blow out the candles. Which a lot of people with breathlessness use. And... What it does is that you breathe in the rose. you have to do it through your uh, mouth, yeah, sorry, your nose to get the full perfume. You then get past that and you've got to breathe out. Now that breathe out is actually more important than the breathing because you have to be able to get the carbon monoxide out so that you can get the oxygen in. And if you don't do that, you're not going to succeed in your uh, recovery at all.
2: But this type of resilience isn't something that Sue's just had to develop now that she has this problem with breathlessness. It's the same skills she would employ when she was having a bad day at work.
3: And I, I'd be going, you know, I'm having a really rotten day and, you know, I'm sick of people. I don't want to see anybody. I can't do anything. I'm better off leaving this office. For 10 minutes, going downstairs, doing some meditation, doing some whatever. And then I come back as a
2: human. And Tim found this with a lot of the people who developed a strong response to breathlessness. That they're actually really special.
0: They were able to look on these types of problems as challenges. They rose to these as challenges. So these were kind of super people.
2: Having talked to Sue, I agree with Tim. She is a super person. A super person who's been faced with some really heavy burdens.
3: And they said, all right, now we're at this stage where lung transplant is the only solution for your disease. And I kind of went, well, wow, that was a bit of a backhander. Um, and we talked about it a bit and not much. And the doctor said, is there anything else you need to know? And I said, I oh, want just told me across the road that I have cancer. And he said, sorry, you can't have the treatment.
2: You can't have the transplant? No. This year, Sue was told that there isn't much they can do about her cancer either. They sent her home to be with her family and to receive palliative care. But her experience with breathlessness has made her really keen to help others, to share her experiences.
3: I look at others who have got problems and I kind of almost feel like going and tapping them on the shoulder and saying, look, oh, hate to be a bother.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you sound like you've had a really rough year. The way, uh, the way that Tim explained this to me, I mean, he made people like you seem exceptional, that in the face of a, an attack of breathlessness, you can be rash, rational enough to help yourself because you it is scary. Um, it is. But I mean, you're the exception, right? A lot of people haven't or might not be able to develop the strategies that you've developed.
3: That's, that's concerned me, and I thought when I when I started to come out of that area of not being totally rational about how to breathe and the techniques that are required, and I I went looking, literally looking for people, groups, uh, support groups, anything that would help me learn that, I couldn't find anything. I could not find anybody who could support me to learn how to.
2: Take this to the next level. And this is exactly what Tim is trying to fix.
0: We do need more pulmonary rehabilitation services to be accessible to people with COPD and other respiratory conditions and to help them learn these types of strategies. And the other thing I guess to stress is that we I think we really need more research into understanding this vicious circle between breathlessness and then the distress and the panic that that causes and how that they just make each other worse and they go round and round in circles and that's really not very well understood and and we really need to know you know where are the critical points we can intervene to help people break that vicious cycle and actually you know stop themselves from from escalating out of control
2: there is no fail safe strategy for dealing with breathlessness but the information tim got from experts like sue means we are one step closer to helping people to break the cycle of panic And if that story raised any concerns for you, you can contact Lifeline on 131114.
0: You're listening to Think Health on 2 1073
2: After weeks of trying, you finally get the hang of breastfeeding your new baby. And you're proud. Except your mother-in-law says your baby still looks too skinny. A small study from the University of Technology, Sydney, has found that this is the sort of pressure Arabic women experience from their community when breastfeeding. It's a balancing act of different priorities. On the one hand, breastfeeding is culturally seen as being best for the baby. But on the other, many Arabic mothers and grandmothers suggest formula for big, healthy babies. Amanda Ray Hayam is a clinical midwife and honours student at the University of
1: Technology, Sydney. She spoke to Ellen Lee Beater about her research. Breastfeeding is definitely a hot topic in both research and uh, midwifery in general. It's obviously you see the the signs in hospitals and the kind of push towards breast is best. It's so important both for mum and baby and all the emerging research is showing that it's a form of feeding that will impact a baby until their adulthood.
4: So your research has looked at how Arabic women view breastfeeding and infant feeding. How, how is breastfeeding viewed in Arabic cultures? So for the women and the small, small cohort of women, so it
1: was around 17 to 19 women that took part in these focus groups in my study, they viewed it as a culturally normal thing to do. You know, their mother's breastfed, their grandmother's breastfed, their sister's breastfed, their auntie's breastfed, and the theme in that is women. So it was more often women's work. It's like women's ownership of breastfeeding. And that came with this knowledge, this parenting knowledge that all I have to do is pop the baby on the breast. If it's sick, pop the baby on the breast. If it's fussy, pop the baby on the breast. That was something that they kind of kept repeating. And where does this belief stem from? For for Arabic women specifically, it came and they mentioned a lot of it as a Passed down by family members, obviously. Um, it's socially known as well. You know, a woman will say often in clinic when I'm as midwife, when I see women in clinic, whether they're Arabic or or Chinese or any other culture the first thing they say is, yes, I would like to breastfeed. It's very rare that you hear a mother that says, no, I'm just going to bottle feed. And some do, which is perfectly fine because it's the woman's choice, but it's just this, it's socially, it's culturally and for the Muslim women in my study, it was religiously um, indicated for them to breastfeed.
4: Really? where do, Where, is, that, where yeah. is it religiously indicated?
1: Yeah, so um, in the study I had a group of Muslim women around nine women that took part in the focus group and they mention that in the Quran, it's mentioned that a mother um, should breastfeed for two years if she can. So Exactly it's
4: not... like the World Health Organization oh, yeah. guidelines. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> what a coincidence. <laughs> no, um, so for them, it was more, they really brought it up and said, "It's Islam is this defining factor for them and their decisions and desires to breastfeed. And obviously, there were women um, in that group that, that couldn't breastfeed, that had to supplement their babies with formula and that was okay as well and they did mention that you know if you cannot do it if you mentally physically cannot breastfeed it's not something that they Will punish themselves or or anything negative like that.
4: Well, That's kind of interesting because I think in Western society we do get caught up in, but there's a lot of stigma attached to women who do formula feed and who aren't able to breastfeed or choose not to breastfeed but are you saying that in Arabic and Muslim cultures it's okay if you make that choice not to breastfeed?
1: Definitely. The mothers, they actually brought up a a point that was very um, recurrent in all three focus groups that there is a massive social push towards breastfeeding, both in the hospitals and outside in the hospitals, or even sitting in a waiting room. A mother mentioned that she, you know, she was formula feeding her baby, and her baby was a bit ill, and she could hear another mother mentioning that, you know, if you breastfed your baby, it wouldn't be that sick, and that's a bit concerning. That it's such, you know, we're putting women under this massive pressure that breastfeed, breastfeed, you have to breastfeed, and they're stressing themselves out. And the women mentioned that that it's such a massive social push more than even a cultural and it's not even a solely Arabic thing like let's breastfeed it's in the wards when they first have their baby It almost kind of the theme was brought up that are we giving women an option to breastfeed or bottle feed or really informing them that it's okay if you cannot breastfeed, there are other options. We can help you, we can educate you and give you that. So they're making informed consent.
4: And also I think came through in the study that there's this belief that a healthy baby is a big baby. So the women mentioned
1: that healthy, fat baby thing. And as an Arabic, Arabic woman, you know, both my parents are Lebanese, I totally got that. When the women mentioned it, I thought, yes, that's exactly, you know, what my mom or dad say or my grandmother says, you know, keep eating, keep eating, you're not full, and you've eaten like two plates of whatever meal you're having.
4: Exactly. And that's quite a thing in Lebanese culture is the definitely, food.
1: Definitely, yeah. And you think, you know, does it really stretch on to kind of when the baby's just born – their stomachs are so little, you know, they're not going to eat two plates of (laughs) tabbouleh for lunch. Um, But the women kind of had a giggle and said, yes, my baby is you know, a normal weight, healthy, exclusively breastfed, he's four months old, yet my mother and my mother-in-law always push for me to give it formula. Like, he cries, give it more food, give it formula, you know, he's still hungry, look at him, he's too skinny, Ra rah, rah, and they just went on and on, and they just, it was a, it was a, actually quite funny, but a really important theme that, in, in the view of probably older Arabic mothers and mother-in-laws and maybe some fathers, that... A skinnier baby or an exclusively breastfed baby was not that, if it's not fat, if the baby is not fat, then it's not healthy.
4: Well, that's kind of an interesting comparison because there's that big promotion of breastfeeding, but at yep. the same time, they're saying the baby needs to be fat. Yeah, yeah,
1: definitely. And, you know, some of the mothers, because a lot of them were from, you know, late 20s to in their 30s, and they would mention that their mothers, it was like the generation of formula being the saviour. So that older generation of Arabic, you know, mothers would come in and go, oh, just give it the bottle. Like, it's going to keep crying. It's easy for you. It's easy for your partner. It's easy if you want to go for work. And to top it off, they're going to put on a lot of weight. Whereas, you know, you're breastfeeding it, you know, haram, it's not getting enough nutrition. It's not getting enough milk.
4: Pregnant women and new mums, they always look towards their mothers and grandmothers for guidance more mm. so than anybody else. Does that concern you as a midwife that their parents and grandparents are giving them this the advice? That that formula advice? Yeah. It's not
1: really concerning. I find it quite I, I love when the mothers or the or the grandmothers or the aunties or the, you know, female cousins they all come into the labor room and or the postnatal room and they all kind of contributing. Sometimes they can give them contradicting advice, but it's up to us as midwives or clinicians, nurses, lactation consultants to inform the woman enough that she makes that educated decision that breastfeeding's going fine, my baby's settled, healthy, good weight. Do I really need to give it formula to just make it stop crying during the night or something like that? Or what else can I do? And and that's why we try as best as we can is to educate the women antenatally as well, giving them that form of education.
2: Amanda Ray Hayam, a clinical midwife and honours student at the University of Technology, Sydney, talking with Ellen Lee Beter. You're listening to Think Health
0: on 2 CR 107.3.
2: Being an adolescent is all about experimenting with sex and sexuality, but throw depression and psychosis into the mix and things can get a bit messy. A new study, Origin, the National Centre of Excellence in Youth and Mental Health, has found that adolescents attending mental health services are engaging in high rates of risky sexual behaviour. This is defined as unprotected sex and multiple sexual partners. But interestingly, the participants also complained of sexual dysfunction as a result of medication. Brian O'Donoghue is a consultant, psychiatrist and clinical research fellow at Origin. He spoke to Ellen Beater.
5: Essentially, how this project came about is that I worked with the early psychosis service at Origin Youth Health. And what we saw clinically was is that one of the side effects of medication can be uh, sexual dysfunction. So, a number of young people who were being treated with uh, antipsychotic medication, but then when asked about it, they were actually having experiencing unfortunately sexual dysfunction. So myself and colleagues looked at this and looked at the literature in terms of how we could help support people or manage it, and, and what you know strategies could be used to to kind of reduce the side effects. And when we looked at the literature, we actually found well firstly that there was very little on it, and then we also looked and saw well actually you know sexual health was a much broader topic that included um, lots of other things such as high sexual behaviours. And, and also we saw that actually this wasn't just specific to psychosis, that actually the limited research that has been done, it's also related to other mental health disorders like depression, anxiety, and people with personality disorders as well. So what we decided to do was uh, just do a large kind of uh, scoping study essentially and uh, ask kind of very general questions, broad questions about sexual health for the young people that attended our mental health service. So we did a study earlier this year and it was uh, two medical students, Elizabeth Macmillan and Aziel Adan-Sanchez, who did the interviews and they interviewed 103 young people who were attending the service and, and were affected by mental health disorders.
4: And what sort of questions were you asking them?
5: There was a questionnaire that had been done with uh, secondary students and that, that, that had been devised by the Archers and the um, service in, in um, La Trobe. And what they did was... Um, they had devised questions about sexual health and we looked at those questions, took some of them and then added in other ones. But we were essentially asking broad ones about whether people had been sexually active, the first age, that this person had engaged in sexual activity, but also as well the frequency of this activity um, and also whether contraception had been used as well.
4: And that's the interesting one their contraception. I believe a lot of young people who were attending mental health service in this study weren't using contraception.
5: Yeah, that's right. And we were—I we were, um, suppose that, that was one of the findings we were quite struck by. And really, what it looked like was that under forty percent of people had been u- were using barrier contraception regularly, and it, which meant that then you know over sixty percent of people were exposed potentially to uh, STIs if they didn't notice the, the history of their partners. And also uh, uh, less than 40% were using non barrier contraception, which meant then actually that um, around 37% of people weren't using any regular form of contraception. Do you
4: think now we need, as mental health services, we need to be discussing sex with young people and contraception?
5: Absolutely. I think, um, I think. well, one of the things is that there's been a, a real shift now in mental health services that we now kind of focus on as well, the physical health of, of people with mental health disorders. So you can't really separate the two. So physical and mental health are so intertwined and connected. But also within that, we have to also include sexual health. So... From, from our study we, we see that you know young people are much at higher risk of high risk sexual behaviours and also their consequences or the, the, you know, the, the results of that which is their own plant pregnancy or, or exposure to sexually transmitted infections so really and the other thing that we know is, is that young people who attend mental health disorders aren't necessarily attending gps or other services so it's if, there's, if, this, if this kind of serves as an opportunity to intervene and kind of at least screen for, for, um, for these behaviours and, and, and these conditions Because if we can uh, identify them, then uh, we can also kind of link the people in with appropriate services.
4: So what's the link between high-risk sexual behaviour and mental health problems?
5: Um, Firstly, I suppose we we know that adolescence and early adulthood is a high-risk period of time for development mental health disorders but also it's the the, the period of time for high-risk sexual behavior so ultimately it seems like there's kind of an interaction with the the two that the people who develop mental health disorders are more vulnerable to kind of high-risk sexual behaviors or engage in high-risk sexual behaviors.
4: And that's interesting because you mentioned the psychosis medication actually makes you feel less likely to want to have sex right?
5: Yeah, that's right. So so the two are in some way kind of contrast because what, what um, and it's also just to say as well is that with the sexual dysfunction, it's not, it's not it, the antipsychotic medication does impair that, but other medications do as well, like antidepressant medication, but also parts of the disorder. So if, if someone is depressed, for example... That can lead to kind of decreased motivation, decreased enjoyment, and similarly, we can also see that in psychosis. So it's not it, it, all, the, the connection between these the two, sexual health and mental health, is, is quite complex because there's a number of factors that, that relate to each other. But you're right. So we kind of two things kind of came out from the study was one is the high risk sexual behaviours. But then the other one was that there was this high prevalence of sexual dysfunction. And nearly 40% of the, of the young people who we, we interviewed had clinically relevant uh, you know, sexual dysfunction. And that's actually quite a high level of, of, of sexual dysfunction. And nearly all young people actually endorsed kind of one item on, on the kind of the questionnaire that we used asking about sexual dysfunction. Um, so, and, and, that, and that's another factor because the other thing we, we asked about were... Uh, young people's subjective experiences around their uh, interpersonal relationships and their, their kind of romantic intimate relationships. And what we found is that if they had, if they had sexual dysfunction, that they were more likely to describe kind of negative uh, subjective experiences around, around sex. So it, I suppose there's, there's lots of things going on. The relationships are complex. But this is also another factor that's prevalent, that while young people are more likely to engage in higher sexual behaviours, they're also experiencing sexual dysfunction.
4: And what's been the reaction of the young people you've spoken to about discussing their sexual health and their mental health?
5: Yeah, well, one of the things we're very struck by is that we, first of all, we had a very high consent rate. So, you know, over 70% of people that we asked to... Participate in the study agreed to take part. We were asking very, you know, intimate, personal questions. And really what we found, um, as I mentioned, the medical students uh, conducted the interviews. What they felt back to me was, was that the young people were very open about this. It was something that they did want to discuss because it was a very important aspect of their life. And I think that's um the other thing that's uh, that was striking about the study was the huge support that we received from the clinicians working in the service. Um, um, they, they were very keen for the study to take to, uh. Take place, and they were, and they, and they also wanted to see the results of it, because I think clinically they are seeing as well that, that that sexual health and mental health, you know, they, they can't be divided. That there's a big impact uh, from both, on both directions. So really, young people, I think we're very, you know, keen to talk about this and uh, address these issues. And I think sometimes there can be barriers that, you know, clinicians can either be embarrassed about asking about these questions, uh, and also a bit unsure whether, you know, in mental health services, should, whether we should be addressing sexual health or not.
2: Brian O'Donoghue talking with Ellen Lee Beater. And once again, if that story has raised concerns, call Lifeline on 131114. to find out more about think health head to our website at 2ser.com forward slash think health think health is available wherever you are you can search think health on your favorite podcast app and if today's show has raised any questions for you go and see your gp this show is produced with the support of the university of technology sydney and 2ser i'm nina kopel thanks for your company